This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello all, this is Kristen Haberther welcoming you to this bite-sized bio webinar. Today's presentation is titled, How to Prepare a Winning Grant Proposal, Part Two, Nuts and Bolts, and is being presented by Gail Siegel, who's a research associate professor at the State, of, sorry, at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Dr. Gail Siegel is a research associate professor, like you said, at the State University of New York at Buffalo, a graduate of Rutgers University, Bachelor's of Science, and Albany Medical College, it's where she got her PhD as well as uh, having postdoctoral training at the University of Rochester. Dr. Siegel's primary research focus is the study of cancer stem cells and chemoresistance in retinoblastoma. She's authored over 75 manuscripts and has received a Sybil Harrington Research Scholar Award from Research to Prevent Blindness and a Fight for Sight Alumni Achievement Award. Dr. Siegel is a fellow of the Association for Research in Vision and ophthalmology and has served as a member of grant study sections, including the National Institutes of Health, Department of Defense, National Science Foundation, and Fight for Sight. So as always, we will have a question and answer session at the end of the presentation. So now over to you, Gail, for your presentation. Thank you very much, Kristen, and thanks to Bite Size Bio for sponsoring this uh, webinar on how to prepare a winning grant proposal, part two, nuts and bolts. So this is the second of a three-part webinar series. Um, each of the parts stands on its own independently, but I just want to mention them. The first part was about getting started. That was back last week on August 15th. Today is about nuts and bolts, about your research plan. And next week, we'll talk about responding to critiques on August 29th. So we'll get started on part two today. And I should mention, just as Kristen mentioned, as you, these questions occur to you, please feel free to write them in the chat box for later discussion. I know that a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is, a very, is very general, and a lot of the attendees have specific questions. And so I think it's helpful to leave, I'll leave a lot of time for discussion at the end and think about your questions and just write them as we go along and we'll, we'll address them at the end. Just want to, in one slide, recap part one, just to get us sort of up to the same page here. Um, before you start writing, um, you can look at part one because uh, in, that, in part one, we talked about developing an innovative yet feasible idea, finding a suitable sponsor, bringing people on board, getting approvals, and preparing boilerplates. So those are all the sort of things that I tend to do before I even start writing the main research plan of the proposal. And these are the things you think about, um, you can think about as you're going along. Um, we will not discuss these today. Um, we're gonna move forward to the research plan. So there are several key sections in the body of the typical grant that we're gonna discuss here. And in this order, we're gonna talk about the specific aims, the research strategy, and the abstract. I put the abstract at the end because it's kind of a summary of everything I'll put together and you'll see as we go along. So let's start with the specific aim section. The typical proposal has two to four specific aims and it depends on the length of the project. 
you can include sub aims like 1A, 1B, but you try not to get too complicated. Um, in general, you know, if a grant is, is only one or two years, you only want a couple of aims versus if you've got like a five-year grant, you may want more towards the four or sometimes even five, but you want to keep things pretty simple. You'll keep it to one page. A lot of the funding agencies have a page limit of one page. And if you can keep it to one page, it just keeps everything organized and succinct. Um, you can get into more detail about everything on subsequent pages. You want to include an introductory paragraph as well as a summarizing paragraph to your specific aims. And we'll go through those um, in this presentation. And each specific aim should have an accompanying hypothesis, along with a brief explanation about how you will test the hypothesis. That's sort of the overall uh, general idea of specific aims. And I, I will, let's go through some of these. So let's talk about the introductory paragraph. And this is your chance to introduce yourself to the reviewers. You want to start with an introductory paragraph to describe your research area and to capture the reviewer's attention. So you start with a simple first sentence and then add information about what is known in your area and present the gap in knowledge and how you plan to fill this gap. And I do have um, on the next slide an example, introductory paragraph. So notice the double horned mutation in unicorns is a serious threat to animal husbandry. So that's a nice, very simple first sentence and it tells us what the problem is. There is a critical need for biomarkers that can aid in the diagnosis of this disease and identify potential targets for therapeutic intervention. So now we're going toward you know, what the problem is and what we need to do about it. We have unique access to a valuable unicorn breeding facility, giving us a very special opportunity to examine over 300 unicorns. So this sign of shows, you know, this is how we're uniquely qualified to do this project. Our overarching hypothesis Notice the hypothesis is in there that double horn mutation leads to overexpression of stem cell markers, which leads to secondary horn formation. So now you've got your hypothesis in there. And then we will carry out the following specific aims to test this hypothesis. And this sentence you can always put, it fits at the end of any introductory paragraph for specific aims. But that's pretty much how you want to structure your introduction to the reviewers using uh, these specific parts of the. Um, of your idea. So in terms of the specific aims, you want to make sure that each of your aims can be accomplished independently of one another. And I cannot stress how important this is. I'm going to show you, I'm going to dwell on this for a minute because this is one of the most common problems that I see as a reviewer of grants um, about aims. So let's look at a good example of two aims that are independent of one another. Aim one assess stem cell marker expression in DH1 mutant unicorns. Aim two, overexpress stem cell markers in wild type unicorns. So you can see aim one uses a mutant animal, aim two uses a wild type, they're doing different things. So these two aims can be done separately. One doesn't depend on the other. Um, so these, these are nice independent aims, yet they, there's some connection between them as far as the project that, you know, that it's uh, the proposal and the project. But let's look at a bad example for a minute. So here's a, an example of a dependent aim problem. So aim one 
you design the probe, aim two, you use the probe from aim one to run your experiment. This should give you a stop sign, a red flag. Think about it for a minute. Suppose you have technical problems designing the probe or your technician leaves or you, you're somehow not able to design this probe for one reason or another. You now can't do AIM-2. You need the probe from AIM-1 to do AIM-2. So a reviewer is going to jump all over this and say, uh-oh, they're, they're going to be stuck here um, and they can't get to AIM-2. So this is a big problem. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen um, in some of the grants that I've reviewed. And there are ways of trying to get away from this problem, which I'll show you one way to repair it. So a solution to that problem, have the probe ready so that AIM-2 now becomes AIM-1. So instead of AIM-1 design the probe, AIM-2 use the probe from AIM-1, it becomes AIM-1 use the probe that you already have on hand, and AIM-2 is your next step. Now I can hear you in the audience saying, wait a minute, I need the money to be able to design and, and make the probe. And the thing is that you know sometimes um, you're, these, this is where your preliminary results come in. And hopefully you have the probe already, that the one that you need for your experiment so that um, that you don't have to design it and make it as part of the grant. That's that's the ideal situation. I know that doesn't always happen, but that's one way of overcoming a dependent aim and something that I really encourage if you're able to do it. So let's look at the anatomy of a specific aim uh, for an example. All right, so let's, so usually what I would do is write in bold aim one, quantitatively assess the abundance of stem cell markers in double horn unicorns. So there's your goal, and right at the top, you follow it with your hypothesis. So our hypothesis is stem cell marker expression is increased in DH unicorns. And you want a nice declarative sentence. You don't want it long and complicated. Try to make it as simple as possible for the reviewers to understand. Then you follow that by a little paragraph about why and how you plan to do this. You might even mention about, you know, case studies have looked at this previously with a couple of references, but we need to examine this further and how we will do it. So these, this is the way that you, I usually um, set up a specific aim uh, on the specific aims page. And of course you repeat this uh, template for the two, three or four aims that you have in your proposal. And then at the end of the specific aim, I usually have a summary paragraph. And for that, you want to talk about, let's say, how innovative it is, what results you might expect, or the broad impact that the whole thing has. Just kind of tie the whole thing together at the end with a paragraph like this. The proposed studies will identify stem cell markers expressed by unicorns and provide greater insight into the mechanism of double horn disease. These results may lead to new approaches in the treatment for the disease with potential to increase survival of unicorns in captivity. So it's not very long, but it kind of pulls the whole thing together and ends your summary paragraph for the specific aims. So the next part I'm gonna talk about um, is a bit longer. It's the research strategy um, or research plan. They have different names for it. And we'll go through some sort of general presentation ideas um, and how to deal with your significance, innovation, and approach sections um, for the research strategy. So 
just general presentation guidelines to start. Follow the page limits. I mean, this is very you know self-explanatory, but you definitely want to check with your the sponsored directions and see you know what is the page limit and keep to it. We're going to talk about a lot of ways of addressing uh, space problems and, and page limits, but you want to make sure that your fonts and your images are readable, and you want to make uh, the text as easy as possible for a non-expert to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. And my basic uh, advice is assume that your reviewer is a non-expert with poor vision. And I mention this because um, think about you're, you're writing this for the reviewer, um, presumably, and that person you don't know. I mean, they whether they know a lot about your field or whether, um, you know, how much they're able to see as far as, you know, different sizes of fonts and things, we'll get into that. But make it as easy as possible for the reviewer to understand and to see because um, you don't want the added problem of, say, of the reviewer saying, I, I don't know what's going on here, I can't see it, I don't understand it. I mean, I should mention that I've often reviewed grants that are not in my direct area of expertise. Um, and so it's, it's very helpful to be able to see things in a more simplified language that uh, that I can understand. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. So you wanna use bold subheadings, you wanna leave breathing spaces between sections, and you wanna either italicize or use bold font for important points. And I'll illustrate this on the next slide. So here's our, our um, specific aims, but it also can be part of your research strategy where you've got aim one, notice that that's in bold. We've got a breathing space here, we've got a breathing space here, and italics for the hypothesis. So it kind of helps these sections stand out a little bit more, um, and it, it's easier to read and, and understand when you do it this way. Uh, I'll show you a little bit more on the next slide. Okay. So which I'm going to go through a little exercise of which side is easier to read, the left side or the right side. Notice on this on the left side we've got our bold, our space, our our italics, and then our text. This side is just not unformatted, and it's just so much you can see it's just so much easier to follow this side than this side. Same thing goes for um, font. I mean I'm being a little bit over dramatic here, but you know, choose the font that is going to be easier to read. Either you know, this is, I think this is Helvetica, or you use Times New Roman, or one of the standard fonts, rather than you know these fancy dancy fonts that make it harder to read. Um, and also, there's usually some guideline from the sponsor. Sometimes they tell you what font that you should be using. And then, of course, the size. Um, and again, being being a little melodramatic, but notice, I mean. You really have to be able to read this. I mean, you you've saved a lot of space. You can see using the smaller font on the right, but yeah, you know, hard to read and just really you know probably doesn't comply with the the directions either. And the size also applies to your figures. So these make sure your figures are large enough that you're including. Um, this happens to be some results that I'm never going to publish, so I'm putting them up here. But notice, I mean, these are very. This is a very you know, easy to read, nice size graph. But I mean, look at over here. You can't, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can hardly make out the numbers along here, along the X axis. And I have to tell you the truth. I have gotten grants where this is what the graph looks like. 
and it's very annoying. And, you know, you can probably, you know, uh, if it's on the screen, you can enlarge it, but it annoys reviewers to get uh, figures that look like this. So, I mean, there may, there may be a happy medium, and I know you'd, sometimes you have space problems, but at least make the figures as big as you can uh, with the space constraints that you have. That's my, my advice. And the other thing about presentation is you want to avoid excess jargon, you know, strange code words that you use in your lab or in your, only in your field. You want to simplify or define it when you can. So example here, uh, original sentence. We show that in unicorns, uni1 binds predominantly in the three prime untranslated region of mRNA. So let's revise that because I'm not an expert in this. I don't know what uni1 is. So we show that in unicorns, the uni1 protein involved in horn development binds primarily in the three prime untranslated region of mRNA. So that already helps it quite a bit, and it helps me know what uni1 is since that's not my expertise. So see if you can even just put a parentheses or put a you know a little aside of what the gene is or what it's doing, so you're not sort of buried in uh, jargon. The other thing that I find that's very helpful is to read the sections out loud to yourself. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when you're reading something quietly or silently, uh, it's not. It doesn't sound the same as when you're reading it out loud. And sometimes just the act of reading something out loud to yourself will show you that something doesn't sound right or that maybe you want to change something because you should be able to say what you're writing. And if it doesn't sound right, you know, continue to work on it. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Abbreviations. Uh, some grants will ask you, please list all abbreviations at the beginning or at the end. And in that case, you can make a, a table like this where you, you, know, you list the acronym and what the definition of the acronym is. And in other cases, they don't. So when that happens, you want to define the abbreviations the first time that they appear. So here's an example, LPS, lipopolysaccharide is an activator of microglial cells in mythical creatures with known effects on gene expression and cellular activity. So you just want to do that the first time. You don't have to do that every time, but the first time that an abbreviation appears, you want to define what it is. The other thing that can help you is to make a table for long lists. Um, this is an example of antibodies that I used for a grant. Um, and so I just listed the antibody what the antibody recognizes, and then the source, which I blanked out because I don't want to give them free advertising. But you make you know a nice uh, chart, and it just kind of puts everything in one place for the reviewer to look at instead of trying to find it all over the text. And it may even save you some space if you do it like this. Um, the other thing you need to do is state where you buy the reagents when they're mentioned for the first time. So here we've got the collagen gel for prepared with a solution consisting of 15 microliters of unicorn tail collagen type 1 from Leaky Cauldron Sciences, London, UK. So you, again, the first time you mention a, a product, you should say where you purchased it, and it gives the reviewers an idea of uh, you know, where you got it, and, and they can look it up further if they want to know more about it. So here's, in general, just some space-saving ideas, because you're always fighting page limits while you're doing this. So one is to optimize 
the sizes of the figures and the fonts. Um, you want them to be as big as you can put them in there, you know, so that they're legible, but yet fit within the space. Including tables when you can may help you. Um, referring to publications and the text, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, you can minimize the margins to a point. Again, you got to follow the guidelines. Some of the uh, proposals have a minimum margin. One thing that can save you a lot of space is the word the. So if you can eliminate the word the, that can help you quite a bit. And also any other types of redundant words or redundancy, um, get rid of it and you might be able to save yourself some space. So now let's think about more about the research strategy itself. And this is thinking about what are the reviewers going to ask while they're reading it. Well, first they're going to ask, is this a novel idea or approach? And we talked about this a little in part one, but you want this to be a very compelling, exciting idea that will grab the reviewer's attention. It can't just be some kind of, you know, just a very incremental change or um, something that somebody else has already done in just a slightly different way. So you want to be very novel um, and innovative. They're going to ask whether you can get this work done during a reasonable time frame. And it's hard to tell. You, you never know how long your experiments are going to take. Um, you know, a lot of this is, 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 you know, educated guess about time frame, but you'd rather be accused of being overambitious than underambitious um, in general. That's what I've, I've noticed uh, during the years. So, you know, you put it in, you, you put in experiments and say, I'm going to do this, that, and the other, and hopefully it's a reasonable time frame. You need to be aware of pitfalls and possible alternatives. We'll talk about that a little later. Uh, making sure you have your controls and statistics. We'll talk about that. And can your results prove your hypothesis? So these are all the questions that reviewers were asked and you should ask yourself. So let's talk about the significance. This is your opportunity to sell your idea by presenting what is the state of your field? What is the, the big area that you're working in and where do you fit in that? What are your long-term plans? You know, where is this field going? Where do you fit? Where is your project going in the future? Uh, what kind of preliminary data do you have to show that you have feasibility? And is there a gap in the knowledge in this field that you can fill? These are all things that you can add, put in your significance. So let's look at an example of a significance paragraph. The goal of this project is to develop a robust quantitative histology-based test of stem cell markers for DH disease in unicorns. There's your goal. Once definitive information on stem cell marker expression in unicorns is determined on a large scale, stem cell markers may be used for diagnosis, provide targets for new drugs. In turn, it may lead to new therapeutic strategies against the disease in unicorns for improved animal husbandry. So we're saying it's very significant. Once we have this in place, it could be used for drugs and therapies. And so this becomes rather significant. Innovation. You want to show how your project is unique and how your team is particularly qualified to carry out the work. So for example, these are some points of innovation. We have unique access to over 300 unicorns for analysis. So wow, about not many people have that. That's that makes this very uh, innovative for you. There's a stem cell marker that we're examining that's novel. All right, there's some novelty there. 
We've gathered a world-renowned team of experts in the field. Good. I mean, that, that you could have a, you know, your team could be very different from anyone else in the world studying this, which gives you some, some innovation. And we present a new method for detecting the mutation. So a new method is innovative. So, and then you have to think about what makes your project innovative. Um, there's gotta be something about what you're doing that's different and unique to you um, that makes you innovative. And that's for you to find out and for you to add to your innovation section, but it, there's gotta be something. There's always something innovative and exciting about what you're doing or you wouldn't be doing it. And then for your approach, you want to include enough methodological detail to show you're able to conduct the experiments, but you again, you have the page limit issue. So in this section, this is actually from one of my own uh, proposals. I talk about slides being immunostained according to protocols optimized in our laboratory for paraffin sections. Reference. By adding this reference in here, I've saved a lot of text. So after the reference, I just say briefly, blah, 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 but it's only a few sentences versus, versus you know, it might've been a really big paragraph if I hadn't put the reference in there. So be sure to add references. That'll help you a lot with your um, page limitations. So for each aim, you want, you want to state the goal and the hypothesis, just like you did with the, um, the specific aims. And um, so I won't go over those again. They're pretty much done in the same uh, pattern as you did the specific aims. But you're also now going to expand on this by stating the rationale, describing experiments, including analysis and statistics, discuss anticipated results, and mention the pitfalls and alternatives. So we'll go through these uh, other sections. So here's the rationale. We've shown previously that the DH mutant unicorn preferably expresses UNI3, the horn developmental marker that regulates expression of stem cell markers. So there's what we've shown previously. That's part of our rationale. We're going to build on these findings to identify other stem cell genes expressed by DH mutants that can be used to control or assess the behavior of differentiating horn progenitor cells over time. So this is just a rational, why are we doing this aim? Why are we doing this experiment? You have a rationale, something we did before that we will build on and do, do something else now. You wanted to discuss the anticipated results. You're not, maybe you don't know what's going to happen, but you have to kind of put yourself out there and say, what do you think is going to happen? So in this aim, we expect to see an increased expression of stem cell markers in DH mutant unicorns that it corresponds with the formation of double horns. So, you know, you think that, okay, well, um, we think that's going to happen. It might not happen, but you have to sort of put something out there and say what you think is going to happen. And then as far as pitfalls and alternatives, you can pretty much, since you're doing these experiments, hopefully you know what these are. But here, for example, not all the DH mutant unicorns will express high levels of particular stem cell marker. This is all the more reason to propose detecting more than one as we have in this proposal. So not only do you say, you know, what a drawback might be, you have an answer for, oh, well, that's why we added more than one marker because we don't expect only, you know, one to be important. So you've tried to have to find ways to mitigate the pitfall if you can. And that's gonna be very individualized to what you're doing. Another thing I like to include in the approach section is a timeline. 
the timeline shows that you've thought ahead with a plan in an organized way. So this is a, from one of my grants. Um, this happened to be a four-year project. And um, just show you know the different uh, tasks that you plan to do and then how long they might take. And again, this is educated guess because you really don't know, um, but you can you know, approximate or take an educated guess of how long these different um, tasks will take in the four years. I have another one. This is a different timeline I made for, this was a one-year project. So I did it according to quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, and quarter four. Um, and again, it's just uh, you know how long you think things will take. This one, I even included manuscript preparation, data interpretation, publication. So it's very good to show this in here that you've, you've thought ahead of how long this might take and to sort of let people think, have you know the idea that you've thought about it and it's under control. The other thing I like to see sometimes or like to do myself is to put a flow chart of the research plan in there um, to show uh, what you're doing for each aim. And notice these aims are not dependent on each other, so they each have a little bit of an independent uh, streak to them. And you know, this again, this is again just showing you're in control of what you're doing and you've thought it through. So these can be helpful. Let's talk about statistics for a minute. Um, statistics are really very important. Um, simple, like this is one again from my uh, one of my grants. Simple comparisons between groups will be performed using chi-square tests or Fisher's exact test for categorical variables and analysis of variance for continuous variables. Notice reference, save space, and then I continue on. So this is not a very long statistics section. It'll depend on what you're doing, how heavy the statistics will be. Um, for some, you know, from for some proposals, this may just be enough right here. However, if you don't have enough expertise in statistics and it's a heavy statistics project, consider adding a dedicated statistician to your key personnel. Um, I'm on some review panels where each proposal is assigned a biostatistician to review it. And so you can imagine how much, uh, you know, how statistics are so important in, in those proposals. And if there's not a statistician, they often say, you know, needs a statistician. So think about it. You probably have a core facility or something at your institution where you can uh, have someone help you. They could be a consultant on your grant or they could uh, help you write it. They can be involved in the project. You can put a little salary in there for them, especially if it's a very heavy statistics um, type of project. Now we'll move on to the abstract and the narrative portion of the proposal. And this is actually going to make a first impression. Um, it comes before almost everything else. And you do not want to include any proprietary information in the abstract or the narrative because these are often the public sections, you know, they're put on the website. So you definitely want to be careful of what's on there. Uh, don't give away too many secrets about what you're doing. The narrative, um, and not all uh, sponsors want a narrative, but the NIH often will ask for a narrative. It's written in layperson's language, and it's usually only two or three sentences. So here's an example. Double horn disease is a major threat to survival of unicorns. This project seeks to identify potential therapeutic targets 
that may aid in the diagnosis and treatment of the DH disease. So it's two sentences. Somebody probably with um, you know, high school, uh, you know, a high school student or a college student would be able to read this and understand it. And that you want the general public to be able to understand uh, what you wrote in the narrative. Now, the abstract is more detailed. That's going to be longer and more technical than the narrative. It does not have to be in lay language. You want to use your specific aims as your guide, but you're going to shorten them and simplify them. You want to begin with the significance of your research and the relevance of the mission to the mission of your sponsor. You have to include hypotheses in there, talk about your objectives over the long term, and of course, keep to the word limit, which is usually not very long for an abstract. So let's look at an example of the abstract. So here's again, double horn disease is a major threat to survival of unicorn. Little is known about potential treatments. And this is a veterinary health concern of major interest to the Mythical Creatures Foundation. So we've, we've, we've included, you know, why this is important to the foundation, that we don't know very much about it. And our goal is to, to assess the relationship between DH mutation and stem cell marker expression in the disease. Then our overarching hypothesis, we stick that in there. It can even be in bold and underlined so the reviewers with the, who can't see as well, can, well it won't uh, be hidden to them. And we'll carry out the following specific aims to test the hypothesis. So you want to put aim one, aim two, this happens to have two aims. But then not only do you have aim one, you say, we will test the hypothesis that the DH mutation increases stem cell marker expression using method A and method B. So you want to make sure you mention the methods in the abstract because then the reviewers will understand that you, um, you know how you're going to be doing this. And results of the study may lead to new therapeutic strategies against double horn disease and unicorns for improved animal husbandry. So this is all, again, a big summary of um, the whole thing at the end. So in summary, each section of your proposal is important and gives you the chance to shine. You want to present all your material in a clear manner, making sure to define all the acronyms, as we talked about. You want the specific aims to always be accompanied by a hypothesis. And you want to use every opportunity to sell the idea and your ability to do the work. You want to include controls, statistics, as well as the pitfalls and alternative approaches. You want to make the proposal easier, easy for reviewers to follow and understand. And finally, I would say have someone trustworthy look at it and make suggestions. And you'll know who, you know, who the person is that you might be able to uh, discuss this with, somebody in your field a colleague, somebody, your advisor, whoever it is, um, definitely, you know, think about who might be able to help you with it. And I think if you do a lot of these things, it will, it will you know, give you a better chance to um, have a successful proposal. So as I mentioned, I left tons of time for discussion, and I'll be happy to answer any questions at this point. Thanks. Thanks, Gail. That was really really interesting and helpful conversation and presentation. I really appreciate it. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was just, as I was just thinking, there was uh, so many things I was just nodding my head to saying, yes, 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 you have to do that. I remember um, before we get to the questions, there was a 
a proposal that one of my colleagues was submitting and she had in order to try to save space did not leave breathing room as you had suggested um and moreover did put her font in a normal size except she made it very small so it was, it was very skinny instead um like a like a it, I think it was just Arial 11 but for somehow she made it almost each letter was half the width of its normal size and it was so difficult to read so yes <laughs> you have to placate the the reviewers a lot for sure yeah um, definitely yes definitely so we have a question here from raymond who asks which he she didn't but um it reads maybe you'll get to it later but what about using active versus passive voice are both okay or are there situations where each is better um, you know, you hear a lot of the people giving advice about using active voice, and uh, I think you should do that whenever you can. Um, I know I, I, back in the olden days, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a thing, so I got sometimes in the habit of using passive voice. If you can use active voice, that's probably a better thing. It also, I think, shortens the sentence uh, as well. So whenever you can, uh, it's a good idea to use it. Yeah, and to add to that, I would think too that um, as you had suggested, as you read it aloud, that it's gonna make more sense also to keep it in probably in, in active voice rather than passive voice continuously. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I have a question too, um, probably for our reviewers. Um, when you, so you were talking about your uh, setting up abbreviations at the beginning of your proposal, and um, I know that they obviously help out a lot when you're talking, uh, especially for space, <laughs> when you're trying to, to make the most out of your space. How much abbreviation do you think is okay? Like, obviously, if there's something that you're going to be using often, like, you know, UTR, if you, you know, the, but if you, if you're trying to abbreviate everything, does that become an issue for reviewers or can they usually slide by it? Um, in my experience, when they ask you for a table of abbreviations, are you talking about the table of abbreviations or just in general defining so, abbreviations? Just in general, like, you know, is, is do you think that there's a, a max number of abbreviations that you should define in, in, within a text? like? If you are if you're starting to abbreviate everything, so then by the time you're in the middle of your your proposal and the reviewer is having to remember what ten different abbreviations mean, is that like is that a normal thing or is that something that um, grant writers should be aware of? Yeah, it can be kind of confusing. Again, it's not if it's, we're not in the lab and it's not our area to try to remember what different abbreviations are. I mean, some abbreviations you can probably get away like PBS. Most people know what PBS is or things that are just really common in the in the field or in mm -hmm. a chemical. But, you know, if it's a gene, you know, the, if you say what it is the first time, especially if it's a gene you're studying um, and it's going to appear multiple times, if you just you put it in one once or twice just to define it. You don't have to keep doing that. It's pretty much the first time you mention it. Um, and again, I think I like actually the um, the proposals that have people make a chart at the beginning because then you can just refer back to it. But not everyone you know asks for that. And then of course, if you put it in yourself without being asked, it's going to take up a lot of space. 
Right, for sure, for sure. Um, do you, let's see, I was gonna ask you a question. Um, well, so you had mentioned that the biggest thing that reviewer or that you see as a reviewer as a mistake is to have aims that are dependent upon one one another. What yes. is the second most issue that you find within reviewing grants that you just see over and over and over again? Um, probably not having the resources or not having the uh, reagents or what they need to do the project. Mm -hmm. So saying, like not, I'm gonna, yeah, not having the probe, not having the cell line, not having the antibody and having to make it. And then, you know, again, that ends up being dependent aim again, but it's also a problem of not having uh, what you need. Right. And so that's that can be a really big problem is you want to have everything in place to do that project. If you don't have it, you, know, you can ask the collaborator or somebody who does have it. Yes, I'll send you this uh, probe or this antibody and I have it. Um, that, that'll help you get around the problem, too. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, how when you're looking at um, common pitfalls and alternatives, what do you have any suggestions for? Because I know as scientists, we try to we're always trying to talk about how great our research is, and so sometimes it's hard, like you mentioned, to kind of step take a step back and think like, well, actually, this could go wrong or this could go wrong. How kind of a two pronged question. One is how do you do you have any tips on how to kind of allow yourself as a researcher to view those holes within your own research, and then also to not go too far where the reviewer may be like, well, this is not a good project. There's so many different, like how many alternatives or pitfalls do you give um, before stopping yeah. the second, I guess? Yeah, no, I was to get to the second part first is, yeah, I mean, I think I've made the mistake once in a while putting too many pitfalls in my <laughs> early on. And I oh no, no, you can't do that. Uh, you want to get to the major ones that they'll probably that the reviewer would probably recognize. Mm -hmm. You probably know of more, and, and then maybe some are just unique to you, or sometimes you can combine a couple of pitfalls into one just so that you don't have 10 pitfalls, you know, listed for your, and it's longer than the other text in your proposal. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, if you're, if this is your area and you do it, you, you know, I mean, you know, there could be a technical problem with this, you know, doing this experiment or, the animals might might not breed properly, or you know whatever it is, um, you you probably know. And if you don't know, um, you can ask, or you can look at uh, other proposals that are online. You can look at um, you know sometimes there are good examples of grants uh, that you can look at and see you know what did they do in mm -hmm. your own field because each field might be a little bit different um, you know as far as that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, so there's a question we actually have on that topic. Um, they ask, do you always have to include the alternatives and pitfalls in all the specific aims? What about if we're very sure our methods will definitely work? See, now I've, I've, I've had that happen in proposals that I review, and I'm a little skeptical that everything <laughs> works perfectly all the time. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so if you can, even, the, even a minor thing, you know, it's like when you go to a job interview and someone asks, what's your weakness? And you say, I work too hard or something, you know, find something that yeah. is a weakness that 
that find something that is a weakness that you can overcome. Mm -hmm. You know, you can say, or you can even say, I know that in some labs uh, they, there are problems with X, Y, and Z, but we're able to do it because look, we you know we did this before or something. Right, Just right. Like, Check out our yeah. paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, and there's another question from Stella. She asks, any tips on writing about innovation? Is it acceptable to say, quote, now that the technology is present, we can look at the real picture? Or is that not very strong? Um, if you're okay. using already ex already existing technology, that's okay. The project, you know, if the project's really innovative and you're using an older method, um, that's completely okay. Uh, you know, it doesn't always have to be the most groundbreaking methodology. It's the idea and what is it that you're going to accomplish that should be the most innovative. I'm saying if you have, let's say that, you know, you have to look for innovation wherever you can find it. Yeah. So even if it's just our team is innovative or our gene is innovative or something, something's got to be innovative in there that you can mention um, in your innovation. I think that was always a problem that I had or a struggle that I had to try to find the innovation because when you, at least for me, when I would think of innovation, I would think it'd have to be this huge groundbreaking, amazing paradigm shifting thing, but it doesn't. It can be something very simple. Like you know, we're, we're going to add a building block to, I don't know, a, a technology that already exists or something like that. Right, exactly. Great. Um, yeah, no problem, Stella. She says cheers. <laughs> <laughs> um, Great. Well, it looks like we're um, we're done with the questions. If anybody has anything, uh, please feel free to go ahead and let us know. Um, Gail, I'd really like to thank you for bringing light to the problem of the double horn mutation in unicorns. <laughs> I had no idea. I'm going to go start a march now. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so if anybody has any questions, um, go ahead and uh, can, I believe, contact us at Bite Size Bio. Um, and thank you for everyone for listening. Thank you again for Gail for just such a great presentation and a great discussion. If you have enjoyed the seminar and like to view the video recording this session, you can visit our webinars page at bitesizebio.com. It will likely be available in the next 24 hours. And again, I listed the link in the chat section of our box here. And you can actually look for other webinars that we've lined up for you. So until next time, good luck in all your research and goodbye to all of us from Bite Size Bio. Thanks everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar, or to browse the listening series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.